Coming up in this podcast, BGC sale, housing starts, treasurer's forecast, Alinta's wind farm, the pavilion market site in Subiaco, family business succession, and our special feature on land development. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Mark, uh, firstly, construction giant BGC announced big changes to the sale process for the group's assets. Yeah, look, this was a very substantial shift in their strategy. Uh, so the Buckeridge family had decided that they would sell the business so that all the uh, children and grandchildren and stepchildren of uh, the founder, uh, the late Len Buckeridge, could essentially take their cut of the money and uh, move on with their lives. What they've come to is a decision that we're in the midst of a very substantial downturn in housing construction activity, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. And essentially they've said, look, this is not the time to be selling a business that's all about building materials and housing construction. Yeah, and if we can just remind readers, they're one of the biggest house builders in the country. Uh, They're based... pretty much do that exclusively in WA, but then they're very vertically integrated, aren't they? So they make bricks, they make window frames and all sorts of things that go into those houses. So it's quite a large group. And they've got some other parts of the business. They had a mining construction business. Yep, so that's that's still going, at the sale of that is still going ahead. Right. So there were several legs to their, their announcement during yep. the week. So yeah, BGC Contracting, it's a, a big national business. They've got about 2,000 people around the country. Um, they're a, a mining and civil contractor. Um, so that the sale of that business is continuing. So Macquarie Capital, which is advising the group, they'll be running that process. They've also got a lot of properties that um, Len built up over the years, yeah. office buildings and apartments and all and sorts had of hotels, other things. right. They sold some hotels. That's right. They've, just sold, they've already sold the Western Hotel and the Aloft Hotel in Rivervale. Um, BGC Centre, that's a substantial office tower in the CBD. That's one of the properties that'll be going on the market. Yeah. So safe to say, simply by selling the contracting business and the surplus properties, that there'll be a, a nice uh, flow of money coming back to uh, the members of the Buckeridge family. Gotcha. Um, and then at some point in future, they'll evaluate whether or not they sell the core business. Um, and remind me now, so we, we, there was a bit of a family crisis there. There was a lot of pressure within the family as to who controlled what and when, who was going to get money and control the business. Um, when did they put it up for sale? Was that a year ago or not quite? Uh, less than, middle of last year. Middle of last year, yes. okay. And then at some point they, they kind of had it, things on the market and then they actually appointed quite some time later they appointed investment bankers and, and then put on a board to manage the company, all sort of somewhat in reverse or, you know, seemed to be doing things after the fact. Maybe they were testing the market first? Well, I think, though, that the family, um, perhaps in their defence, they reached that in-principle decision. Yeah. So, look, we don't want to be long-term owners of this business. Um, we'd rather sell the business, distribute the proceeds to the family members and move on. Yeah. And in fact, Sam Buckridge said at the time, this will be a long process that we go through. So one of the things they did was they appointed Macquarie Capital. um, And before that, they brought in three independent directors, including Neil Hamilton as an independent chairman. So that in itself was a a very big shift in what has had always been a very um, private, you know, tightly held family business. 
Um, And in fact, there was a further update around the management of the business. They announced that they would be seeking a new chief executive. Um, Once again, a big shift. So, and an independent or a non-family, a non-family member. Yeah. Yeah. So, So, uh, Sam Buckridge, his brother Andrew Buckridge, and their stepbrother Julian Ambrose, who've all been involved in running the business, they will all step down immediately from their executive roles. Right. They'll stay on the board as non-executives, so they'll still have an oversight of what goes on here. Um, But they're moving out of the executive role. Um, Alan Tate who was recruited as the CFO last year. He'll be acting CEO while they do an executive search. Hmm. So interesting process. Um, you know, it's, it's a very big, successful business. Um, I guess if you're a, a chief executive looking for a challenge in an interesting situation with family shareholders and the prospect of being sold in two or three years, yep. um, quite a Fascinating scenario. Maybe you need a swashbuckling adventurer who uh, is willing to do an MBO. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, so not your average job, but then uh, not the average opportunity either. No. So yeah, so big changes for one of WA's most prominent businesses. Okay, interesting. Uh, now staying with housing construction, uh, the latest HIA forecasts for housing starts have been revised to, to fall next year. So that, that, and so they were previously tipped to rise, and now they're going to say, oh, actually, no, it's going to fall. And we're talking about WA here, correct? That's correct. Well, so nationally, the HIA has revised their numbers, but the yeah. bit that's relevant for our listeners um, is the WA data. So as we alluded to earlier, housing starts or dwelling, active, con- dwelling construction has been on a downward trend for the last five or six years. Just to throw a couple of numbers to give context to this, back in 2014, there was 32,000 dwelling commencements in WA. Yeah, uh, which was a record, right? A record, yes. Normally it's around sort of the, the, the low to mid-20s. Yeah. Um, last year fell to about 16,200. Now, the HIA had been anticipating an uptick in 2019, but they've just reviewed their numbers Um, In particular, they looked at the building approvals figures, Mm -hmm. and they think this is tied in with what's going on in the banking industry post-Royal Commission. Lending has been tightened up, um, so housing finance and building approvals have uh, been a lot weaker than they'd been anticipating. So rather than a tick up next year in dwelling construction, they're now saying it's going to go down again um, to, you know, just a, a smidge over 16,000, yeah, right, okay. which would be, they're saying that's the low point. So I guess that's the, uh, <laughs> some degree of positivity out of this. Um, and then quite a substantial uptick in 2020 and further growth in 2021. Um, mm. But yeah, so it's, um, you know, for anyone that's in that space, like PGC, um, get used to continued very low level of market activity. Yeah, no, no, that's uh, that's significant, isn't it? And uh, and BGC, interesting. I mean, they're in that uh, volume game, and that's the that's the you know the the uh, the cheaper end of the housing market, not exclusively, but but that's typically where they've been, and uh, and that's that's you know that's a, that volume drop, the biggest volume drop, of course, is going to be at the uh, at the lower end of the the price point. Mm. And interesting too, Mark, just to to break that down. Within that total of about 16,000, housing is only 12,600. 
Yeah. So there's about three and a half thousand apartments in yeah, there right, as well, which, which didn't exist, which wasn't even in the equation to any degree. About a decade or so yeah, ago. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, now, uh, Mark, we've got we had State Treasurer speaking of you know financials and the economy. <laughs> We had State Treasurer Ben Wyatt speaking at one of our events during the week. Uh, he was highlighting uh, how various scenario, scenarios around the China-US trade uh, or dispute that's going on could affect the state's finances. What did you take out from that? Yeah, look, interesting presentation. Um, ben Wyatt spoke about uh, going overseas and meeting the investors that buy WA government bonds. And they asked the question, uh, you know, you guys are exposed to China, um, the iron ore market. You know, what if things go pear-shaped in China? Uh, what about this trade war with the US, uh, these increasing tariffs? How is that going to flow through to Western Australia and how are you going to cope with it? So the, the boffins in Treasury have done a bunch of projections and, and looked at what might happen to Western Australia under different scenarios in future. And I mean, some of them, um, you know, the worst case scenario there would be quite a substantial hit to growth in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that flows through with investment, employment, and then, of course, that would hit the budget as well. Um, now, Ben Wyatt did his best to argue that the um, worst-case scenario will not happen. And in particular, this whole issue around tariffs, um, the threat that Donald Trump might impose high tariffs on Chinese exports to the US and that China would in turn retaliate um, with their own tariffs. Mm-hmm. There's lots of bluster, lots of threats. Um, ben Wyatt's argument is that common sense will prevail. People realise that high tariffs are no good for anybody. Yep. Um, yeah, you know, always hard to make those sorts of predictions in the era of a Trump presidency. <laughs> um, but you know, there's a lot of, uh, lot of logic in what he's saying there. And, and I guess the other point he was highlighting was you know, these issues are bigger for Western Australia when you've got a high debt and you've got to go and sell lots of government bonds yeah. to pay the bills. It was fair advice, wasn't it? Because I think one of the questions from the floor was, uh, you know, what should business prepare? Or maybe it was from Peter Kennedy who did a and a with him. Uh, what, what should business do to prepare? And he said, well, it's the same as the state, really, isn't it? So you, you know, you've got to shore up your finances, make sure you, you've got a solid business because then you're much more able to withstand the impact. Um, I note one of his slides, he had uh, how much uh, iron ore China takes, and then it had how much of that iron ore is converted into steel, which is exported to the US, which was quite a tiny proportion of the iron ore. And the other bit that I really was fascinated with, which was more of a, I guess it was just the optimist part and, and a different take on the on the future, was this kind of, there's a they'd made a dot in 2000 and... Eight, I think it was, and it's out there near the Azores, I think, or something in the in the, in the kind of near the equator in the Atlantic, um, in the North Atlantic, I'd say. Uh, of that was effectively the, the 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 middle point of the world economy. Like if you if you you know worked out where all the money was made in the world, it, that was kind of like the middle of it. And that middle point has moved across to where it's just above WA uh, in in some part of Asia now. I can't remember and already and it's about to move even further so it effectively comes in just underneath china and the point he makes if you look at another graph 
Asia itself moves south to just below China as North Asia gets less important and Southeast Asia becomes more important. So basically we're the centre of the world. Is that right, Mark? That <laughs> the, 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 the centre of the world's economy is basically moving towards us. Yeah, I, think, well, look, I think we need to drive that point home. Yeah, no, well, there's been a lot of talk about the time zone that we're in, yeah. uh, fortuitously in this time zone. And you're right. I mean... You know, when we were younger men, Japan was the centre of attention. Yeah. Uh, now it's China. Uh, look ahead, places like Indonesia, um, uh, poised for more growth. Yep. So, uh, yes, we're very nicely placed to okay. benefit from that. Indeed. So that was a bit of the rose, rosy glass, but... Uh but, you know, look, I still thought he had a lot to say. And I guess, yeah, I guess ultimately the, the downside scenario was bad, but it wasn't catastrophic. And there was a, the scenario there where China went to stimulate, even, even if things got bad, was kind of pulled a whole lot of things forward. So we almost could have a little mini boom and then a downturn over a four-year period. So it's kind of an interesting... So th- th- there's, there's some, certainly some volatility to watch for, but he certainly was positive, I thought. Uh, yeah, look, that bit about the Chinese stimulus I thought was interesting. Mm. You can do a short-term sort of boost mm. via government stimulus packages, but it's not sustainable longer term. No, as you said, it's just bringing spending forward, mm. right? Um, anyway, obviously the Treasury officials had examples of stimulus in China to work it out from too. Um, now, look, a bit something different. Uh, Energy Group Alinter is the latest to approve a new wind farm with plans to spend $400 million. Yeah, I mean, like we talked about the uh, building being a bit down, um, but uh, renewable energy is an area attracting a lot of money into Western Australia, similar on the East Coast. In fact, we've lagged the East Coast. There's been a lot more investment over there in solar farms and wind farms. But in the past few months, uh, there's been several big investment decisions. And the latest one last week was from Alinta Energy. They're going to invest $400 million on their Yandon wind farm. This is up north towards Greenough. And people that drive that way and see the trees bent over know that the wind just keeps on blowing. So, you know, it's a great place for a wind farm. Um, They're going to have 51 generators generating, what, 214 megawatts of power. Enough, they say, that they can actually wind down some of their gas-fired power stations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and their view is wind is you know, roughly 20% cheaper than gas. Yeah, right. um, quite a significant margin. Now, of course, there's this whole issue that you know, wind is inter- intermittent and it creates issues for managing the system as you know, the, the wind blows and then tapers off. So that's an issue. Um, similar things with Synergy. They're building their Waradage wind farm at the moment. That's even bigger, a bit over 200 megawatts. And where's that? Uh, same place, essentially, right. um, up around that sort of Greenough area up towards yep. Geraldton. Um, an APA group, they've got their Bajangara wind farm. Uh, so Matt McKenzie covered this news, and readers will know that Matt analyses the energy market very closely, and he's already talked about the fact that plans are being developed for phasing out of the coal-fired power stations. So, you know, there was a flurry of news around recently about what's the future for Collie. Mm. Um, well, you know, this suggests that, you know, there, there's big question marks there. The, um, you know, I mean, coal's not going to disappear tomorrow, um, many years ahead, but clearly the trend is more and more towards renewables, uh, less gas and definitely less coal. So a big shift in power generation. Yeah, well, no surprises there. Uh, Mark, Blackburn's 
back on property again. Blackburn's uh, Pavilion Markets project got uh, development assessment panel green light for its 24-storey project. Yeah, so look, once again, some good news um, amidst a, a bit of a downturn in the sector generally. Uh, look, this is an iconic site in Subiaco, just opposite the train station. It was um, a, a markets that were very popular for many people, would have been sitting there boarded up for a long time now. So Paul Blackburn, good on him. He bought the site off another developer who'd been trying for, I think, the better part of a decade to get approvals through. Um, but Paul's come up with a plan for a, a, a three, three separate buildings on the site, um, the biggest one, as you say, 24 storeys. Now, it still encountered some opposition from the locals and some people on the city of Subiaco. Um, and as we've discussed before, you know, real issues about getting things approved in Subiaco. Mm. But look, it's gone right through. The Dappers um, said it's all set to roll. In fact, they did an assessment of you know, what they call the, the quality of the design and such, and it got a very high score on that front. Um, they also had a, um, a public comment period. Good news there. 87% of people voted strongly in favour of the development. Yeah, right. Um, and they've already had 400 registrations of interest from people who are you know, looking to potentially invest and buy one of the apartments. Yeah, so, okay, right. So, so it's mixed use, of course. There's a lot of appetite out there mm. for people, for people that are wanting a choice um, in different types of housing. You know, yeah. there's... Um, the, the and a great location. I mean, you live in an apartment in Subiaco, it's all there, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, so Sub- um, Subiaco needs that little boost too, I think. <laughs> I, I know that there's lots of people in Subiaco, uh, plenty of activists there who complain about any sort of progress, <laughs> if we want to call it that. Uh, but, you know, I think this is, from what I've seen, been done pretty tastefully. And, and the funny thing is there was a 16-storey project was previously the one that was mooted and that got, you know attacked and so maybe people got to be careful what they attack because they just get something you know leave it long enough and they get something different anyway be interesting um now mark we talked about bgc earlier you've done some work on succession in family businesses what did you find i had a really interesting catch up with several members from family family business australia and they opened up very candidly about the process that they're going through. So these are the next generation family members who are in the process of taking over from their parents, in each case, long running family businesses. And I'm sure there are many listeners out there who are familiar with, or in fact, perhaps going through exactly the same process themselves. Um, And everyone knows that uh, dealing with relationships in a family can be tricky. Layer a business on top of that, <laughs> absolutely, and money, and just think what's involved. So, uh, you know, I, there are no simple answers to this because every business and every family is unique. Um, but it was fascinating to hear what some of these groups are doing. So, Tom Bromberger, his family runs uh, Pelican Manufacturing, and now Tom's actually gone as far as as writing a formal succession plan and a family constitution, which is a path a lot of family businesses go down, but emphasise that, you know, as much as you've got a document, it's really about the people and the relationships and the emotions. And his parents are still involved in the business. Um, Another example is Jeff Ash uh, from Filter Supplies. His parents are in their 80s, but they they still come into work. Mm. And he said they love it. 
you know, it's their business. They built it up. You know, it's their baby, and they're not going to walk away from it easily. So he's found a way of working constructively with his parents. You know, he, he sort of effectively runs the business, but mum and dad are still there, and big decisions still involve them. Um, and, you know, he hasn't even tried to document a succession plan because he said it's the things that you can't write down mm. that you need to deal with. And the other person I chatted to was Megan Bagworth from Academic Group. Now, she actually started a career outside the family business and thought she probably would not go into the family business but got a call one day from her mum and came in and uh, as the business got bigger and now she's taking over the business. What does academic group do, Mark? Uh, look, it's essentially a, a tutoring group. Right, helps okay. students uh, with exam preparations, and they publish a bunch of books and study guides and so on. Yeah, right. Um, you know, uh, Pam Bagworth was an English teacher, spotted this opportunity in the market, and has built up a substantial business um, across the state. Um, they, in fact, export some of their books uh, mm. overseas, um, and, and a good business. Um, and in fact, Ma- Megan made the point that after she got involved, um, she started talking about the family business. And her mum said, no, no, it's my business. I built it up. But then bit by bit, over time, you know, there's been this transition away. Um, Pam's no longer involved in the business day to day. Megan's taking it over. Um, but they're going through that process, building trust and building a, a plan that's going to work for everyone. So, you know, some really interesting case studies there, um, which I think will give some insight to people in family business in that sort of scenario. Yeah, no, fascinating. Okay, well, thanks, Mark. And uh, look, finally, and again, it's property again, a bit of a property-heavy podcast. Uh, That's because our special report this week is on land developers. So what's Dan Wilkie found there? Well, look, some parallels with the story around housing construction, um, as you'd anticipate. So Dan's spoken to a lot of the big players in that area, you know, people like Pete, Cedar Woods, Satterley. Uh, tough times. Um, the last sort of five or six years, volume of activity has just been falling away. Mm. You know, six or seven years ago, they were all battling to keep up with demand. Um, now it's very soft. And one of the concerns for these groups is that a lot of them, and those names I just mentioned, they've all expanded over to the East Coast. And that's held them in good stead. Yep. Until now, yep. And so, you know, credit squeeze is starting to flow through, and activity in those markets is falling right away. Mm-hmm. So, bit of a theme, you know, a bit of battening down the hatches to deal with a, a quiet market across the country. Um, but look, you know, things go on. So, Pete, for instance, they've always they've had a lot of um, medium density apartment projects that have been built as part of their land developments these sort of master plan communities that they have, they're actually building on that and now getting into apartment developments in their own right. So they've got one project in Northbridge that Mm -hmm. they're getting on with and planning more. So that's a a diversification to cope with what's changed there. But, you know, some of the groups, Mervac and Oakland, they've got new estates um, here in Perth that they're planning to launch. They're taking the long view that uh, markets will pick up, it will recover, and they want to be ready for it when it happens. So um, a good in-depth analysis, though, from Dan, who's been looking at that industry for quite a few years. Fabulous. Sounds like a great one, Mark. Thank you. Uh, Now, what would you do as a company director? Mark Byer and I discussed the many challenges facing company directors and our own experiences undertaking the Australian Institute of Company Directors 
thought-provoking courses. Uh, just go to the Business News page on SoundCloud or go to businessnews.com.au slash podcasts. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud. <laughs>